All right, well, tonight it's my delight to introduce our speaker. He's a member of Crosspoint, and he has been doing an internship with us here at Crosspoint. He is a captain in the Army, but he's getting out of the Army because he's going to seminary up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Westminster Seminary, and which is a, a really well-known and respected seminary, and Rob Golding's been hanging around doing a just a great job, just interacting with us, growing, um, just a, a dear brother. Let, let me, before he comes, he's going he's gonna to teach on sola fide, how we are saved by faith alone, really the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. So his first time speaking at Crosspoint, we're giving him like the crux of the Protestant Reformation. There's five reasons why I love Rob Golding. Number one, he's a fellow native of California, like I am. He's from the Los Angeles area. Two, he is uh, an army officer, served our nation, uh, and we're grateful for that. Three, he really outpunted his coverage when he married his wife, Olivia, who's sitting next to him right now, who also is from California and was an army officer, and is um, right now, as we speak, growing their first child in her belly, who was due December, November, um, Everly? Yes, Everly Joy? Yes, all right, awesome, I feel good about that. Um, so that's the third reason, and this is not in any particular order. That may be the most reason I love Rob. Fourth is that Rob is an absolute delight to be around. Uh, he, he just has a way about him that you just want to be around him. He's a natural discipler. He has a keen mind, and uh, he's, just a, he's, just a sh he's got a shepherd's heart and really a joy, a joy to be around. And then fifth, I, I just love young men that are called, since a calling to pastoral ministry. And as I've been around him and in other environments, I just um, see gifts in him, and we want to help as a church to give him an opportunity to fan those gifts into flame even before he goes to seminary. So Rob, Captain Rob Golding, come and speak to us tonight, brother. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. Everybody, uh, as Brad said, I'm Rob. I'm an intern here. Um, one of the, the few jobs that interns have is passing out microphones. And you may have noticed I was not very good at that. Um, passed the microphone to the wrong person. So hopefully I'm better at, at talking about Sola Fide. Um, also having problems with this mic, too. I'm just not a microphone guy. Um, so uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about um, when we're talking about sola fide, it's just to kind of go over like the mantra of the Reformation. So we can put it up on the slide. And, and um, uh, Paul mentioned it on stage. And the, the, the mantra, as I call it, is that it's, it's the other slide. Yeah. Um, the mantra is that Scripture tells us, so that's sola scriptura, the first one we talked about, that we are justified by grace alone. That's what Brad talked about last week. And we're justified by grace alone through faith alone. That's what I'm going to talk about. And the faith that we have is in Christ. And, and all of that salvation, that justification we have, is in order to glorify God. So kind of moving sequen sequentially through, Scripture tells us that we're, we're justified. And those three things in the middle, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, those are kind of the middle three that talk about how we're saved. And then... Afterwards, we realize that we are saved not for ourselves to have fun in heaven, but in order to glorify God. Um, so um, to kick us off, I'm, I'm going to go through kind of a lot of quotes from reformers. I'm talking about faith, and this is kind of like a sermon type of thing, but we're also doing like a history type of thing with the Reformation. So I'd probably typically be appealing to the Bible more than I am just these old dead guys. But in order to kind of get our minds wrapped around what the reformers were thinking, I'm going to use a lot of quotes and kind of use a quote and then build a point off of that. So the first point, um, just to kind of set up my talk tonight, is from Luther. 
Um, and this is from his lectures on Galatians. You can put that up. Luther says, if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. So that's kind of, that's why we're here talking about sola fide, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, is because if we don't understand that, if we have a poor understanding of that, we lose everything. And that's why Luther decided, and that's why Luther felt compelled to help start the Reformation, because he said, this is the crux, like Brad was saying, this is the crux of the Christian faith. Okay, so um, the outline, if you could put that up, um, what I'm going to go through tonight is, is what is justification is the first thing. Um, I'm going to explain that a little bit because that's kind of a weird word. And then we're going to talk about what happened to justification through history, and then we'll talk about the implications. Okay, so um, firstly, justification, as we're explaining, it has four kind of facets. Justification is kind of like the word football. Like a football can mean an actual ball that's shaped like a football, a lemon, I don't know. Um, it can mean we're going to go out into the parking lot and play football like flag football, it can mean college football. You may not know that in the South, uh, not a lot of people know about this apparently, but there's a, such a thing as called uh, pro professional football. But um, so there's football means a bunch of different things. And to say the word football can mean all of those things. So justification's kind of like that. So the first um, facet of justification is that it's eschatological. So I'll give you all four. Es These are kind of big words, and I'll explain them. It's eschatological, firstly. Secondly, it's forensic. Third, it's covenantal. And fourth, it's transformative. So first, eschatological. It's like um, the study of eschatology. That's just talking about end times. So it's justification is eschatological. It's in the future, and it's now. So I'm going to give four verses to kind of illustrate those four facets of justification. The first is Romans. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. These are shorter verses. Uh, but the first is Romans 5.19. And they should be up on the screen. Um, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And there's a whole lot in that verse. But the thing we're focusing on there is that will be made righteous. That's a that's a future tense that's saying we will be made righteous. So it, justification has a present implication, but it also has a future implication. Okay, so that's the eschatological. Next, the forensic. Forensic, I thought that was like crime scene investigation, forensic, when I first heard that word. But apparently, it's actually, it, what it's talking about is like legal. It, it's from the Latin word. So it has a legal implication. Um, the, and the verse um, that illustrates that would be John 12, 48, which says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And that's Jesus speaking about what will happen to those who do not accept his words. And he's saying those that don't accept Jesus' words, those that don't accept Jesus will be judged on the last day. So there's a, there's a forensic or legal aspect to justification in which the judge who is God is withholding his wrath from us and he's imputing righteousness to us, kind of like in a courtroom. If you were to stand before a judge and he says, you're guilty, but I'm going to give you my righteousness and allow you off the hook, so to speak. So it's eschatological, it's forensic, it's legal. Third, it's covenantal. So this is a um, covenantal's um, we use that word a lot, but in this sense, and the reason I'm using these kind of big and weird words is just because when theologians talk about this, these are the words they use. So in case you encounter that, you kind of have a context. But I think a better word than covenantal would just be social. It has a social implication. The verse to illustrate that 
would be Galatians 3.28. This is a popular, just beautiful verse that many of us are familiar with that says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think that, that verse is, the reason it's so beautiful is it doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. You know, a child can understand that. We're all one. We have no social boundaries in between us. The, you know, the, the person who, you know, the Jew who can't eat pork can now fellowship with the pig farmer. We're, we're one, you know, the college football fan and the professional football fan. They can still be friends. Um, so the, our justification has a social impact in that just be, as we are saved by Christ, we are now free to extend to our left and to our right with those people who we may not normally have a relationship with in order to spread the gospel, in order to fellowship. Okay, and lastly, the fourth facet of justification that is that it's transformative. And that word's kind of self-explanatory. Um, the verse is 2 Corinthians 5.17. that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, just another beautiful verse. They're all, I mean, the Bible's beautiful, but this is another beautiful verse talking about the reality of our new creation um, thanks to the um, work of justification. Okay, so now we're going to, now that we have kind of a groundwork on what justification is, we're going to talk about a little bit of the history behind why justification kind of got warped and why the Reformers and Martin Luther saw the need to kind of fight against it. And so I'm using that word justification. It has um, faith, grace, and Christ all have implications in justification. But as Brad said, faith is kind of the crux of that. And we'll see that a little bit more as we talk about the history of justification. So um, you may have remembered that Brad and Robert, when they were talking about sola scriptura and sola gratia, um, they talked about St. Augustine. I think Robert did. I know Brad did. Um, St. Augustine was a theologian in the um, 4th century, in the 300s and early 400s. And he, um, he, ha- he, he was one of the first, real first-rate theologians. He, he's a person who was an early church father who people still read today, thousands of years later. He's a first-rate theologian. Um, and the reformers, in many ways, as they were appealing back to Scripture, they also saw themselves as appealing to Augustinian theology, or appealing back to St. Augustine, except in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. St. Augustine actually um, veered off slightly from center on his, do- on his soteriology, his study of how we're saved. The way he understood justification just slightly veered off. And so we have a quote to kind of illustrate that. St. Augustine said in his aptly titled book, On Faith and Works, he said, we can put that quote up there. Okay, we can't put that quote up there. I'll read it to you. Um, We should advise the faithful that they would endanger their salvation of their souls if they acted on the false assurance that faith alone is sufficient for salvation or that they need not perform good works in order to be saved. So you have to take that with a little bit of a grain, a little bit of a grain of salt, because Augustine didn't feel the need to be as precise as John Calvin thousands of years later, because he wasn't dealing with the same things that Calvin was dealing with and Luther was dealing with. 
Um, so there's a little bit of an imprecision, and if Augustine was here today, he may say, no, I totally believe in sola fide, but he wrote some things and kind of made some implications that kind of just veered off. So the way you can think of it is, for those of us that have done land nav in the military, it's like when you get your compass and you're one degree off, you know, you probably can't even tell when you're looking at your compass between one degree and 300, or that's one degree and two degrees. Um, but when you go five miles, the difference is, there's a way to figure it out. I don't know what the difference is. A mile? I don't know. It's, it's a big difference. Just that one little degree. So uh, th- that's kind of how I personally see Augustine. He was off by a little degree. You might not even notice, but a thousand years later, when the Catholic Church was building on this, it kind of erupted out of control. So another way that I look at it, at it, and I'll refer to this a couple more times, is that it's like a snowball effect. Like St. Augustine has this little snowball and then he rolled it down the mountain, and as it was rolling down the mountain, it gathered more and more snow, and it got to the bottom of the mountain, and it turned into this snowball the size of a boulder. Um, and so that's kind of what happened. So what happened was Augustine introduced into, into justification a little bit of an element of works, um, and then that kind of started to snowball into this idea of, okay, well, if, if we need works to be saved, then um, what are we working for? And then that built into, okay, well, we should be working for love and for good things, but we also should be working to um, work off sin. It might sound a little bit familiar. And then that kind of snowballed into, okay, if we're working off sin, how do we work off sin? And then we started to get these doctrines of purgatory, like you go into this place in between heaven and and earth, and you work off your sin there in purgatory, and then we started to snowball some more, and we were saying, well, if, you know, Joe murdered his mom, and Jane lied to his mom, they shouldn't be working on the same level in purgatory, so now we have different levels or different amount of time spent in purgatory, and then we have this concept of, well, we also need to work off sin um, while we're on earth, and so we get this idea, the, we started to get this um, doctrine of penance where um, people would actually whip themselves in order to work off their sins on earth. And then because there's different levels of sin, we said, well, not everybody should have to whip themselves. Um, It's kind of like if you're, you know, like our modern justice system, if someone kills someone, you have to put them in prison. But if someone speeds on the highway, the cops don't want to put you in jail and deal with you. You don't want to go in jail. So if we just pay some money, you pay a fine for the speeding ticket, then every, it's a win-win. That's what happened with the Catholic Church. We got this idea of indulgences. It was, well, instead of having to whip yourself, just pay some money to the church, and we'll high-five, and you know your sin will be worked off, um, and so forth. So you can kind of see how we just got this little... Augustine kind of had this little just kind of tweak in his um, theology, and it snowballed into this thing where we're, we, ha- we had people in the 16th century paying the Catholic Church for their sins, which, you know, what Augustine said might not sound that weird, but then when you fast forward 1,500 years or 1,000 years, it's like paying people, paying the church for my sins, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, So that is where Luther steps in. Um, He had been dealing and um, um, grappling with this idea of indulgences primarily, as well as Another key point, a thing he was dealing with was the authority of the Pope. So the Pope, the Pope said, you, do, you need to do this, you need to do this. So the Pope says, you need to pay for your sins or whip yourself, or there's a, such a thing as purgatory, even though it's not in the Bible. That is infallible now. And so that's what Luther 
came in and was um, fighting against. So um, an, an interesting note here is some of you may have heard of Philip Melanchthon. He is Luther's kind of protege, um, a little bit younger than Luther. Um, Luther, when, when Luther passed away, Philip Melanchthon kind of carried on Luther's torch, um, and Luther kind of uh, mentored him. But actually, Melanchthon was the one that helped Luther understand his doctrine of justification. Um, Melanchthon expressed to Luther through the written word, through the Bible, that you can't be saved by works. It's only through faith. It's only through faith alone. And then Luther kind of took that and ran with it. Melanchthon followed him. And then about 26 years later came Calvin. Calvin was 26 years older than Luther. So John Calvin came on the scene in um, Switzerland. Luther was in Germany. And Calvin then built on kind of what Luther was building on. And there's a lot more reformers to talk about. But um, it's, it's good to kind of know that Luther didn't just wake up one day and say, okay, I have this idea of, of what justification is. It was a slow progress as they started to understand the word more and more. Okay, so we'll use now a quote from Calvin to kind of illustrate. I think this is a, a beautiful quote by Calvin. Do we not have any more slides? Or is, okay, we do. Um, so this is just a great quote to kind of exemplify justification in, in two sentences. Calvin said, Moreover, we see how not simply content to have given God due praise for our salvation, he expressly excludes us from all participation in it. It is as if he were saying that not a whit remains to man to glory in, for the whole of salvation comes from God. So really Calvin here is, is expressing a very robust and full idea of justification in which it is solely God and it's kind of where we get this idea of all the five solas that are all oriented towards Christ, towards God, towards the Bible, towards grace and faith. It's not oriented towards us or works. And Calvin kind of very explicitly puts that down. Luther had been saying those things, but Calvin kind of came behind Luther and just really laid out systematically, this is what we think the Bible says. And so the idea behind all of these reformers and all these books they've written you see there, this one comes from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's uh, just a massive book that Calvin wrote. And what he was trying to do is say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segregate uh, the Christian faith into different chunks. And then I'm going to take, for instance, one of those chunks like justification. I'm going to look at all the verses in the Bible that talk about justification. And then I'm going to succinctly, he didn't do a very good job of being succinct. The book was like 1,700 pages. But I'm going to succinctly explain what the Bible says about justification, for instance, and then it just goes on down the list. Um, and so that, that's what they were trying to do. This, this isn't Luther waking up one day and like, oh, I have an idea. Maybe we're, we just don't need to work. It was, uh, they're appealing to Scripture, and all the writing they're doing is using Scripture to kind of whittle it down and say, this is what the Bible says about justification. So, in response to what the Reformers were writing and in response to the Reformers pushing works away from their soteriology, their study of how we're saved, the Catholic Church organized what was called the Council of Trent. And in the Council of Trent, they basically made a, got a bunch of their leaders together and said, we want you to write something down in response to what the Reformers are doing. 
just to be the official um, stance of the Catholic Church, to which the Catholic Church still appeals today. So to exemplify um, what they were saying, the Council of Trent said, at this time, so this is during the Reformation, in response to Calvin and Luther, they said, at this time, nothing is more vexing and disturbing to the Church of God, being the Catholic Church, than a novel, perverse, and erroneous doctrine concerning justification. So that, that was their opinion of sola fide, justification by faith alone. Um, so Calvin's response to that, just to kind of, again, I know I'm using a lot of quotes, but this is kind of, to me at least, it helps you kind of understand the Reformation a little bit. Calvin's response was that the whole, and when he says the whole, he's talking about the Council of Trent, the whole may be thus summed up. Their error consists in sharing the work between God and ourselves. So that's kind of where the Catholic Church and the Reformation kind of met, and they said, we agree to disagree. It wasn't very amicable like it sounds. The Catholic Church was trying to burn them, the Reformers at the stake, and the Reformers said that the Pope was the Antichrist, so um, it didn't end well, and uh, it still isn't going that well. Um, so you may have noticed. Fast forward uh, till basically present day. In 1999, um, the Lutheran church, a bunch of Lutherans, got together with a bunch of Catholics, and they put a group of people together who signed the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. So what happened, this is 18 years ago, 1999, the Lutherans and the Catholics got together and said, okay, we're going to figure out this justification thing. We're going to get on the same team. We're going to write something down. We're going to sign it. And they did. They signed it. The Catholics and Lutherans signed this joint document. Unfortunately, what happened was the Lutherans basically just moved their theology into the Catholic camp, and the Catholics stayed the same. Um, there's a bunch of Catholic theologians today who said the, the joint doctrine, or the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification um, does not disagree with the Council of Trent whatsoever. They both go hand in hand. And we just read the Council of Trent said the Reformed doctrine of justification is vexing and perverse. Um, so, to illustrate kind of where the Catholic Church is today, there's a couple quotes from modern Catholics. Um, so Avery Doles, who's a Jesuit, Jesuit, just think of like Spanish Catholic. Uh, he says, justification is not a central category in contemporary Catholic dogmatics. Um, and then Hans Kung, who's just a regular Catholic, said justification is not the central dogma for Christianity. So that's kind of where the Catholic Church is now. They understand justification as something, they think it exists, but they think it's not central to their dogma, and they have a very different approach to it um, from what the Reformers did and from what we do today as Protestants. Okay, so that's kind of the history of it real quick. Um, I'm kind of bringing it into the modern context in order to kind of help shape some implications. Um, But before we go into the implications, I want to read a quote from a 17th century Puritan, so this John Owen, he's coming after the Reformers, and he's talking about, um, he wasn't talking necessarily about justification by faith, he was talking about more about predestination and the Catholic idea that, you know, we have to choose God and accept him because we recognize him as good, versus the Reformers thought of, we are so depraved, we can't even choose God, he chooses us. So in response to that, John Owen said, to believe the doctrine of it, sola fide, 
um, or not to believe it is one thing, and to enjoy the thing or not to enjoy it is another. I no way doubt that many men do receive more grace from God than they understand or will own. Men may be really saved by that grace, which they doctrinally do deny. So his, kind of, his point was, there may, he thinks that there will be people in heaven who look back and say, I thought that I chose you, but now I realize that you chose me. I, there was nothing in me. I did not do any work. So I put that quote up there to say, in the midst of this great divide between Protestants and Catholics, um, I think we, there's an element of grace that we need to show those that disagree with us, and there's also an element of, of seriousness and um, impetus that we need to show because this is a huge doctrine that has led people astray and away from Christ. So there's a little bit of a balance there. Okay, so moving now into the implications of, of what we've talked about here. I've kind of got four main implications, um, three of which I'll give you a reformer quote to kind of show what they thought about this doctrine and, what, and how, it shaped, how, it, how they felt it should make the rubber meet the road, so to speak. It's not just something we think about, but something that affects the way we live our lives. Um, but first, before we do that, I think a primary implication of understanding justification by faith alone, as well as all five of the solas, is that they're, uh, like I talked about before with Calvin and, and a lot of the reformers who wrote these massive books, they, they would seek to say, okay, what, what are all the verses on justification? I'm going to bring all those together and condense, and condense it down. That's kind of what the five solas are doing. What does the Bible talk about? What does the Bible teach about justification? I'm going to condense those down. And this is kind of a very condensed version of what the Bible says about how we are saved, why we are saved, and how we know we're saved. The implication of that is that if you can take those five solas, you can use them kind of as an interpretive lens for other faith systems. So I guarantee you if you look at a faith system, a religion that is not Christianity, it will fail to meet at least one of the five solas, a lot of times all five of the solas. So you look at something as far away from the Christian faith as Islam, they don't believe in sola scriptura, they believe in the Quran. Um, they don't believe in faith alone. They believe that you need to do works. Um, they don't believe in Christ alone because Christ was just a prophet. Um, so they're, they're veering off in that direction. The Catholic Church, like we talked about, doesn't believe in justification by um, faith alone. They believe that you need to introduce some element of works. So whatever faith system you're looking at, if you interpret it, if you look at it through the five solas, that can help give you kind of an orientation of, okay, here's where they're off, here, here's why they're off. And that's important because in our day and age, we may not struggle with becoming Muslims, but there, there's things kind of like the, the emergent church, which isn't so much emergent anymore, thank God, but things like the emergent church where they would say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He saved me and I have to believe in Him to go to heaven. But they'd also say, you don't have to believe that in order to go to heaven. So they kind of directly contradict themselves. But that was kind of the idea of the emergent churches. It's true to me, but my truth is different than your truth. And in the, in the name of tolerance, I'm not going to impose my truth on you. Um, and so that would be to deny um, in Christ alone, because they're saying, yes, I'm saved in Christ alone, but you can be saved by something else, as well as many, uh, a few other of the solas. So it just helps us when we're interacting with people with different belief systems to orient them back to Scripture, okay? My second um, implication comes from John Calvin. He said, wherever the knowledge of it, talking about sola fide, 
is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly destroyed. So the implication there is that if we don't have a right understanding of justification of faith, not only are we not following God, but the whole church just crumbles. There is no church, there's no body of believers, there is no salvation without the, the understanding that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, next is a quote from Luther, and he said that it is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works, and lest he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his but God. And this, for me, is probably one of the biggest implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that I understand that I'm not some kind of okay guy just trying to do good stuff in order to work my way into heaven. Um, in fact, I am, I am utter, I'm, I'm completely rejecting of God and evil in my heart, but at the same time, God has saved me and he is moving me towards an eternal weight of glory, towards being in his kingdom. So the typical conception that most people have who, who are not Christians or, or just call themselves spiritual or just, just the average person in general would typically say, I'm not really evil, I'm not a bad person, but I'm no hero. You know, I, I do struggle with some stuff. I do make mistakes, but I'm just trying to kind of live a good life, just kind of trying to do good as much good as I can so that I'll go to heaven one day. And what Luther's saying here that the Bible is saying is that instead of kind of being this middle-of-the-road person, the, doctor, the doctrine of justification by faith alone says that it's completely disjointing those two concepts and saying we are completely hell-bent, but God in saving us is making us completely heaven-bent. He is setting for us an eternal weight of glory in which we will be sons and daughters. We are sons and daughters of the King, but we will be as we're being sanctified, we'll be glorified and take part in his kingdom. Um, and so the implication there is to, is to drive our hearts towards repentance, is to drive our hearts towards humility, understanding that, like, like what Luther says, our good works are not, are not ours, but they're God's. Um, it, it helps us understand that we are lost without God, and the fact that we're not lost is due solely by, to God's grace, and that brings about humility, that brings about also just an, an encouragement in our lives in which we look forward to the things that God has set before us, and in that, there's no room for anxiety and worry about the future because our future is set in God because our faith is based on Him alone and not in our works. We experience anxiety and worry, but when, we, when we're truly in God's Spirit and when we truly are looking forward to our sure future, those anxieties and those worries melt away. So it's an encouragement to look forward to Christ, and it's an encouragement to look back at where we came from and understand that we're not there anymore by God's grace, and that should root out every element of pride, which is extremely important because pride is, many people say, the root of all sin. The first sin in the Garden of Eden 
was Adam and Eve saying, I'm not going to listen to God about what he says about this tree and about good and evil. I'm going to do what I want to do and be like God. The temptation from Satan was to, you can know good and evil and be like God. It's a sin of pride. And when we have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it roots out pride and it helps us move towards God. Okay, and lastly, the last implication, I was looking for a reformer for this last quote, and there were some out there, but they were like a paragraph long, and you're probably tired of reading all these quotes, probably tired of hearing me talk. So um, the, the last quote here is from a modern person, John MacArthur, it's really short. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Okay, so his point there <laughs> is that the salvation that we have it's not rooted in our works. And if it was rooted in our works, we wouldn't be saved because we wouldn't do the works and we'd lose our salvation. And why is this an implica- implication? It's, it's an implication because this encourages us to remain faithful to the call that God's given us because we can't lose the faith that we've been given. We, if, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in his grace, if you believe in Christ by his grace through faith, and you will be saved. You have a sure destiny set before you. And the good news is as well, if you don't believe in that, all you need to do is believe in that. That's all you have to do. You don't have to work. You just have to believe. And once you believe, you will be saved. So um, that, that, I think, will help us understand that the life that we live is not one in which We are at the helm, at the helm of the ship, and we need to steer away from the rocks. But God is in control. God is at the helms. He's steering us, and all we need to do is look to him and be faithful. Okay, so I'll uh, I'll close us in prayer, and then after that, we're dismissed for the night. Dear Lord, thank you so much for helping us to understand um, by, by the work of these great men that have gone before us the amazing grace that you've given us such that You have saved us despite ourselves and despite our evil attentions. And you've given us grace through the vehicle of faith. And that faith that we have is in you, Jesus. It's in you alone. It's in the work that you've done on the cross. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind and not a spirit of fear tonight as we go out and ruminate and think about the grace that you've given us, and I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit, Lord, to regenerate us and transform us and help us to be a people that is pleasing to you, Lord. We pray that our lives would be a sweet-smelling incense to you as you look down and see your children who faithfully desire to serve you and glorify you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.